Welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Sonal Dugar. I am a fourth-year medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today's episode is part two of a multi-part series on hyperinflammatory syndromes in children. Last time, we discussed Kawasaki disease, and today we are covering the Kawasaki disease mimic, multi-system inflammatory disease in children associated with COVID-19, better known as MISC. I am excited that we are joined by a multidisciplinary team, including pediatric cardiologist Dr. Pushpa Shivaram, pediatric rheumatologist Dr. Jalissa Patel, and pediatric hospitalist Dr. Zach Hodges. Do each of you want to introduce yourself and tell our listeners about your educational background? Sure. Thank you for the opportunity. My name is Pushpa Shivram. I'm one of the pediatric cardiologists and a multimodality major here at Augusta University. I was trained in pediatric cardiology at Arkansas Children's Hospital. And before that, I did my pediatric residency at Marshville Clinic, Wisconsin. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for the invitation. Also, um, my name is Julissa Patel, and I'm a pediatric rheumatologist here at MCG. I completed my pediatric rheumatology fellowship at Cohen Children's Medical Center in New York. And hi, everyone. My name is Zach Hodges. I recently completed my pediatric residency in 2020 here at MCG, and now I am a pediatric hospitalist. Glad to be back on the podcast. Great. Let's jump right to the discussion. Our audience is well aware of the current COVID-19 pandemic caused by the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 that we will refer to as SARS-CoV-2. While most children have mild symptoms from COVID-19, there have been an increasing number of cases of a multi-system inflammatory syndrome that occurs after SARS-CoV-2 infection. Dr. Shivaram, will you get us started by telling us what exactly is MISC and why our general pediatricians need to be aware of this condition? Sure. As you mentioned, MISC-C or MISC is thought to be post-infectious multi-system hyperinflammatory syndrome that has been described in children who have been previously infected with SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Interestingly, when we are reading about pediatric COVID-19 cases in China in early 2020, there was no mention of this hyperinflammatory syndrome in children. We even thought the children were mostly spared from severe SARS-CoV-2 infection. In late April 2020, an alert came from the United Kingdom that reported a rising number of cases of multi-system hyperinflammatory syndrome. It also seemed to overlap with toxic shock syndrome and atypical Kawasaki disease. These children were suffering from what was thought to be a new syndrome temporarily associated with COVID-19 with the development of symptoms about 3-4 to four weeks after a large number of local SARS-CoV-2 infections. This syndrome was characterized by persistent fever and a combination of symptoms including hypotension, multi-organ system dysfunction, and elevated inflammatory markers. Only about one week later on May 4th, three children were reported to have died in New York of likely MISC-C. This led the CDC on May 14th to release an official health advisory asking pediatricians across the United States to report any cases that may fit the clinical syndrome. And by May 28, there were 161 cases reported in the United States. Something that may be confusing is that MISC-C is known by several different names. When the syndrome was first described in the United Kingdom, it was called Pediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Syndrome, or PIMS. It has also been called Hyperinflammatory Shock, Kawasaki Shock, and Kawasaki-like Illness. All of these names reflect the multisystem involvement and the hyperinflammatory nature of the syndrome. So there is plenty for us to unpack further. If I am understanding this correctly, MIS-C is a post-infectious hyperinflammatory condition that presents after the child has recovered from the initial SARS-CoV-2 infection. 
That's right. The majority of patients with MISC will have antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 and possibly even a negative nasopharyngeal PCR suggesting a previous infection. Great. So let's move forward in our discussion with the case. A nine-year-old boy is brought to the emergency department by his parents with fever, abdominal pain, and a rash for the past three days. Mother also reports decreased oral intake in several episodes of vomiting and diarrhea. Dr. Hodges, will you walk through how you might start your evaluation on this patient? Sure, thanks, Sonal. With ongoing community transmission of COVID-19, this patient would be worrisome for possible MISC. First, any ill-appearing febrile patient should be screened for signs of shock. Remember that shock is basically inadequate oxygen delivery to the tissues. This can manifest in many different ways in children, but most commonly as decreased perfusion to the extremities. Think about weak pulses and prolonged capillary refill time. We spent quite a bit of time discussing a more comprehensive approach to shock in an earlier episode on sepsis that I'd encourage our listeners to check out. Next, if this patient is clinically stable, then we can move on to a careful history and physical exam, just like we would with any other patient. The differential here is very similar to what we discussed in our previous episode on Kawasaki disease. I'd be concerned about acute COVID-19, bacterial sepsis, or toxic shock syndrome from a streptococcal or staphylococcal infection. Of course, other viral infections like adenovirus, rotavirus, and influenza should also be considered, especially if they're actively circulating in the community. Tell us more about your patient's history. Sure. Our nine-year-old boy was previously healthy without any chronic medical problems. His symptoms began with fever and abdominal pain that have progressed to vomiting, diarrhea, and rash over the past 24 hours. Mother states that he has been increasingly irritable and she's worried about him possibly being dehydrated. Mom also reports that the entire family tested positive for COVID-19 about one month ago, but everyone recovered without complications. This is a very interesting case and may be somewhat consistent with MISC. Before we move forward, let's briefly review the presentation of COVID-19 in children and how to screen for MISC. That sounds great. First, we know the vast majority of children with COVID-19 are either asymptomatic or present with mild upper respiratory or gastrointestinal symptoms. At this point, there's relatively convincing evidence that children are less likely to become infected with COVID-19, and if infected, they're much less likely to have severe symptoms as compared to adults. Unfortunately, sometime about two to six weeks following a SARS-CoV-2 infection, there seems to be an increased risk of developing this multi-system inflammatory disease. And the timing here is very key. It was not until a few weeks after the initial wave of COVID-19 infections in Europe and later in New York City that the first cases of MISC were documented. It seems that this syndrome does not present at the time of initial infection in a community but instead usually occurs about one month later. Although the diagnosis is uncommon, it's important for providers to think about MISC in any pediatric patient with prolonged fever and a history of recent COVID-19 disease or likely exposure to a COVID-positive individual. This is especially true because the prevalence of COVID-19 will likely continue to increase in our communities until we have widespread use of an effective vaccine. So, how do we diagnose MISC? Since MISC was initially described in April 2020, the World Health Organization, Royal College of Pediatrics in the United Kingdom, and the Centers for Disease Control have all proposed definitions for the syndrome. Focusing on the CDC case definition, MISC can be diagnosed in children who have 1. Fever greater than 38 Celsius or 100.4 Fahrenheit for greater than one day, 2. Laboratory evidence of inflammation, and we can get into the details of that later. 
Three, evidence of clinically severe illness with multi-system organ involvement. And finally, four, confirmed or probable COVID-19 disease in the prior four weeks with no alternative plausible diagnosis suspected. We should keep in mind that MISC is a clinical syndrome and there is no confirmatory diagnostic test similar to Kawasaki disease. We must rely on detecting children with prolonged fever and multi-system dysfunction in a community with COVID-19 spread. With MISC, there seems to be a delay of about 4-5 to five days from the initial presentation of fever to multi-system disease. Many of these patients have been reported to rapidly decompensate to cardiogenic shock, so we think early detection might help prevent poor outcomes. Of over 1,600 reported cases in the United States through early January, the most common symptoms are fever and gastrointestinal symptoms such as abdominal pain, vomiting, and diarrhea. Other common symptoms at the time of presentation include rash, neurological findings, and cardiac involvement. Up to one-third of cases may even present with overt cardiac dysfunction and shock. These patients will also have evidence of systemic inflammation with lab abnormalities such as increased CRP, ferritin, and erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or ESR. Okay, great. Let's review this quickly. MISC may be diagnosed in a child with evidence of prior COVID-19 who presents with fever, laboratory evidence of inflammation, and severe illness with multi-organ system involvement. This is, of course, after alternative diagnoses have been reasonably excluded. Clinicians need to be aware of the high rates of abdominal pain, vomiting, and other GI symptoms prior to presenting to care. These children are also at high risk of having neurologic findings in developing cardiac dysfunction. So, generally speaking, which patients should we work up for MISC? The American College of Rheumatology has published guidance to help us answer this question. They recommend that as long as COVID-19 is prevalent in the community, MISC should be considered in children with fever greater than 38 degrees Celsius with at least two other suggestive clinical features. These features include rash, gastrointestinal symptoms, edema of the hands and feet, oral mucosal changes, conjunctivitis, lymphadenopathy, or neurologic symptoms. We also need to consider MISC when a child presents with shock of unclear etiology. Cardiac involvement with MISC includes conduction abnormalities causing arrhythmias, ventricular dysfunction, and coronary artery abnormalities. The median age for MISC is about 8 years, but this syndrome can be diagnosed in infants and all the way up to 21 years of age. Most patients do not have any significant past medical history, but obesity seems to be a common risk factor. Hispanic and African-American children also seem to have higher rates of MISC-C, and it is really unclear why this is the case. By the time that many patients with MISC-C present to care, they have greater than four organ systems involved and about 50% will require ICU admission and suffer an overall 1-2% to mortality. So, the illness script for MISC up to this point is a school-aged child, maybe 8 or 9 years old, with a prior history of COVID-19 who develops a new fever about 3-4 to four weeks later. As the syndrome progresses, they may develop many of the signs that we associate with Kawasaki disease, but gastrointestinal symptoms are also very common. Finally, some patients may develop cardiac dysfunction requiring vasoactive medications and ICU care. So, if we have a patient in the primary care office with possible early MISC, what is our next step? At this point, referral to the emergency department or to the closest children's hospital is likely the best choice. The initial evaluation includes a careful history and physical exam, in addition to laboratory and imaging to evaluate for organ dysfunction associated with MISC. We also should exclude other causes that we discussed earlier. 
According to the guidance published by the American College of Rheumatology, children with suspected MISC, who are generally non-toxic appearing and not in shock, should first be screened with a complete blood count with differential, complete metabolic panel including electrolytes, kidney and liver function, an erythrocyte sedimentation rate, CRP or C-reactive protein, and SARS-CoV-2 PCR and serologies. Concerning signs for MISC include evidence of inflammation with a C-reactive protein greater than 5 mg per deciliter or an erythrocyte sedimentation rate greater than 40 mm per hour. These children may also have low lymphocytes, an increased percentage of neutrophils, thrombocytopenia, hyponatremia, and hypoalbuminemia. If multiple abnormalities are detected on this initial screening evaluation or if the patient presents in shock, a more comprehensive evaluation should be obtained. This includes screening for cardiac involvement, hyperinflammation, and hypercoagulability. The cardiac workup includes an electrocardiogram or EKG, brain natriuretic peptide or BNP, troponin, and an echocardiogram. Next, check for evidence of increased inflammation with ferritin, lactate dehydrogenase, triglycerides, procalcitonin, and cytokine panel if available. And finally, hypercoagulability with a prothrombin time, activated partial thromboplastin, D-dimer, and fibrinogen should be checked. Okay, let's review this quickly. The initial screening evaluation includes basic labs looking at blood counts, kidney and liver function, SARS-CoV-2 status, and evidence of inflammation. The first step is to obtain a CBC with differential, complete metabolic panel, ESR, CRP, and of course, SARS-CoV-2 PCR and serology. Common issues to look out for include elevated CRP, elevated ESR, low lymphocytes, low platelets, low sodium, and low albumin. The more comprehensive evaluation for children who are high risk for MISC includes screening for cardiac dysfunction with an EKG, echocardiogram, brain natriuretic peptide, and troponin, hyperinflammation with a ferritin, lactate dehydrogenase, triglycerides, and cytokine panel if available, and finally, hypercoagulability with a PT, APTT, D-dimer, and fibrinogen. And there's no reason to try to memorize all of this. Just keep this flowchart nearby or look it up if you have a patient with possible MISC. We will also be sure to include a link to the guidance provided by the American College of Rheumatology in our show notes. Great. After this initial evaluation, are all of these patients admitted or can some be managed as an outpatient? The decision to admit depends on the severity of illness, laboratory evidence of inflammation, and our patient's access to care. In general, an outpatient evaluation with close follow-up may be appropriate for well-appearing children with stable vital signs, a reassuring physical exam, and normal labs. However, most children with suspected MISC will be admitted, especially if there are abnormal physical exam findings or laboratory evidence of organ dysfunction or hyperinflammation. Many of these children may even require admission to the pediatric intensive care unit due to cardiogenic shock or worrisome neurologic findings. They may even require cardiovascular support and multidisciplinary care depending on the specifics of the case. Children with severe disease and abnormal cardiac findings will need repeat imaging and their labs rendered throughout their hospital stay. EKGs should be performed at least every 48 hours and even more often if conduction abnormalities are present. Echocardiograms are obtained at the time of diagnosis and typically repeated 1-2 to two weeks and 4-6 to six weeks later after presentation. They may even require closer follow-up if abnormalities are detected, similar to how we monitor children with Kawasaki's disease. 
There have been reports of using cardiac MRI in children who are present with left ventricular dysfunction and cardiac CT to screen for distal coronary artery abnormalities that we cannot easily visualize on echocardiogram. It seems like the overwhelming majority of patients with likely MISC are coming into the hospital. Thinking back to our previous episode, there are many similarities between Kawasaki disease and MISC. What are the main differences between the two? You are right, Sono. They do have much in common. Both of these conditions commonly present with prolonged fever, conjunctivitis, oral mucosal changes, rash, extremity changes, and cervical lymphadenopathy. Both may also develop coronary artery abnormalities and even large aneurysm. But there are a few key differences. First, Kawasaki's disease seems to be more common in those of East Asian descent. MISC, on the other hand, seems to be more common in children with African or Hispanic heritage. Patients with MISC are also more likely to be older with an average age of 8 to 9 years old and have more prominent GI and neurologic symptoms. Remember, children with Kawasaki's disease are mostly preschool age, less than 5. MISC is also more likely to present with shock and overt cardiac dysfunction than those with Kawasaki disease. This has most often been due to arrhythmias and ventricular dysfunction. On initial lab, children with MISC will also have lower platelet counts, lower lymphocyte counts, and higher CRP levels when compared to children previously diagnosed with Kawasaki disease. Great. So, just to review, patients with MISC are more likely to be older, have GI symptoms, and present with cardiac dysfunction as compared to those with Kawasaki. MISC is also associated with thrombocytopenia and lymphopenia, which are uncommon in Kawasaki disease. Coming back to our case, after you have identified a child with likely MISC, what is your first step in treatment? Treatment of MISC mostly consists of supportive care, anti-inflammatory medications, and anticoagulation if needed. If the patient is not critically ill, we should first complete the diagnostic evaluation before initiating treatment. Remember that bacterial infections like toxic shock syndrome and sepsis may present similar to MISC and their treatment is somewhat different. Also, giving intravenous immunoglobin or IVIG will make further serologic testing unhelpful. Of course, our patients who present in shock, we might have to start treatment before we have all the information. There have been a few systematic reviews published already on the treatment of MISC. Most commonly, 1 to 2 grams per kilogram of IVIG is first-line therapy. And this treatment is also supported by the recent guidance from the American College of Rheumatology. Remember that a large dose of 1 to 2 gram per kilo of IVIG may require a significant amount of volume. Our patients in cardiogenic shock may not be able to tolerate this amount of fluid. In these cases, IVIG has been divided into two or three equivalent doses and given over 24 to 48 hours. In addition, children with severe disease may also benefit from corticosteroids, which is commonly the second-line agent. Of course, if our patient was hypotensive and suffering from ongoing shock, steroids would likely already be indicated. Typically, low to moderate dose corticosteroids like 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram per day of methylprednisolone are preferred for MISC with high-dose steroids being reserved for those patients in refractory shock. So the take-home point is that supportive care is the mainstay of treatment. Patients with multi-organ system disease or evidence of severe inflammation may benefit from IVIG followed by corticosteroids. But what about those patients who are not critically ill? Do they also need IVIG and maybe steroids? Good question. As of January 2021, it's unclear if patients with mild disease will benefit from treatment. 
We don't know if giving IVIG will prevent coronary artery aneurysms like it does in Kawasaki disease. One take on point is that if your patient with MISC also meets criteria for Kawasaki disease, they should be treated with IVIG. This would also be a good time to reach out to your referral center for more guidance until we have more information. Okay, so be sure to look out for more research coming about what to do in cases with mild symptoms. On the other hand, what about those cases that are resistant to both IVIG and steroids? What is your next step then? There's no clear consensus about what the next step should be. There is evidence that the interleukin-1 receptor antagonist anakinra is safe and could be helpful in refractory cases, especially after IVIG and steroids have been tried. Tocilizumab, which inhibits IL-6, was originally studied in adults with COVID-19 pneumonia. It failed to show any benefit in randomized controlled trials, so it is currently not recommended in pediatrics. Theoretically, both IL-1 and IL-6 are key factors in the pro-inflammatory pathway, but it is unclear if inhibition will improve patient-centered outcomes. Anything else we need to know about anti-inflammatory medicines before we move on? Yes, if patients require IVIG and high-dose steroids, they probably should be discharged home with a slow steroid taper over the next two to three weeks. We don't have a lot of great evidence, but this seems to make sense and is most commonly done. What about antiplatelet medications? Do we treat these patients similar to Kawasaki disease with high-dose aspirin? Good question, and this is a key difference between MISC and Kawasaki disease. Remember that in Kawasaki disease, aspirin is indicated to prevent coronary artery thrombosis. If a patient has mixed presentation with thrombocytosis, then low-dose aspirin is likely indicated. Children with coronary aneurysm should also likely receive aspirin. However, in MISC, thrombocytopenia is actually more common and aspirin should probably be avoided if platelet counts are lower than 80,000 according to American College of Rheumatology guidelines. Thanks. So aspirin is usually decided on a case-by-case basis. We have also heard a lot about using anticoagulation in patients with COVID-19. What is the role of anticoagulation in children with MISC? This is another interesting question and something we are learning more and more about. It seems that our patients with multiple risk factors for deep vein thrombosis will likely benefit from DVT prophylaxis similar to adults. Anticoagulation has also been used in patients with very high D-dimer levels. Overall, it's unclear which critically ill patients need more than DBT prophylaxis, and the decision of whether or not to fully anticoagulate our sickest patients should likely be a multidisciplinary discussion. There are some cardiac indications for anticoagulation that I should mention. First, if there is a large coronary aneurysm, then anticoagulation is likely indicated to prevent thrombosis of the coronary arteries. Our patients with the previously documented thrombosis or those with left ventricular dysfunction and depressed ejection fraction should also be considered for therapeutic anticoagulation. This really becomes a multidisciplinary discussion and I encourage all our listeners to get your subspecialists involved early in this children's care. One theme for this episode is that multidisciplinary care is key for helping our patients achieve the best outcome, especially while we are learning more and more about MISC. As we are getting short on time, I wanted to cover what outpatient follow-up these patients require. What specialties do these patients need to see and when can they get back to their normal activities? Great question, and this is really going to depend on the specifics of the case. In general, patients with MISC should likely follow up with pediatric infectious disease, rheumatology, cardiology, and possibly hematology depending on institutional preference. 
Of course, the severity of illness will dictate how closely they should follow up and what studies need to be done. For patients with MISC and cardiac involvement, they will definitely need close cardiology follow-up. This includes repeat EKGs, echocardiogram, Holter monitoring, exercise stress test, and cardiac MRI if particularly there is cardiac dysfunction at presentation. When these children can get back to normal activity is an ongoing discussion. The American College of Cardiology recommends that patients with MISC restrict their activities for at least next three to six months if there is cardiac involvement at initial presentation. What about children with mild COVID-19 who did not develop MISC? Do they still need a complete cardiac evaluation? Good question. Children with mild COVID-19 or who are asymptomatic do not need a cardiology evaluation. They should be able to return to play after isolating for 14 days following the initial infection. The American College of Cardiology does recommend that children greater than 12 years old with prolonged fever associated with COVID-19 have a screening EKG prior to clearing them for return to sports. If the EKG is abnormal or if there is ongoing concerns, then a cardiology referral is indicated and these patients will likely need 3-6 to six months of activity restriction until we have more information. So mild and asymptomatic disease do not require any testing. Children older than 12 years with moderate disease should be screened with an EKG and referred if abnormal. Finally, those with severe disease should have a comprehensive cardiac evaluation with at least 3-6 to six months of activity restriction. We will be sure to include a link to the guidelines published by the American College of Cardiology in our show notes for listeners to check out. Wow, we really have covered a lot of information today. Are there any take-home points that you would like for our listeners to know before we wrap things up? Sure. Remember to consider MISC in any child who presents with new fever within two to six weeks of a SARS-CoV-2 infection. If there's evidence of hyperinflammation similar to Kawasaki disease or multi-organ system involvement, Get that child to your referral center as soon as possible. And remember that many of these patients may rapidly decompensate and develop cardiac dysfunction. We appreciate our general pediatrician and emergency physicians referring these children for cardiac evaluation early and helping us follow these children as outpatients. Some will likely require ongoing care for residual coronary artery abnormalities, arrhythmias, or ventricular dysfunction. And watch out for other diagnoses that may be confused with MISC. The clinical criteria are relatively nonspecific, so don't narrow your differential too quickly. Sepsis, toxic shock syndrome, and even systemic onset juvenile idiopathic arthritis may all present similarly and need specific treatment. Get your subspecialist involved early to make sure that the child is getting the best care possible. And finally, we are recording this episode in January 2021. This information is likely to change over time, and we hope to keep our listeners updated. As we learn more about this condition, be sure to check out the CDC's website for up-to-date information for our pediatricians. We will be sure to leave a link to the CDC MISC page in the podcast description and in our show notes. Also, let me encourage each of our listeners to report any diagnosed or suspected cases to your local health department so we can continue to learn more about MISC. Thanks everyone for joining me for this episode. I had a great time. Thank you very much for making me a part of this discussion on MISC. Remember, MISC is a moving target. Thank you. Thanks for joining me, everybody. I had a great time. An additional thanks to Dr. Smitha Matthew and Dr. Rita Basali, who provided peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast.com 
at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.